Hey everyone, it's Philippe Reines. Welcome to Unredacted from the DSR Network. I'm here with my co-hosts Emily Branwood and Molly Jong Fast, and we are in Los Angeles to tape an interview with Josh Campbell of CNN. Josh was a longtime FBI agent before joining CNN, and he actually worked directly for Jim Comey um, when Jim Comey was director of the FBI in 2016 and when he was fired in 2017. So Josh has seen some stuff from uh, the other side of the coin that the rest of us have seen, and particularly what I saw in 2016 working for my longtime boss, Hillary Clinton. Um, we never, none of us actually met Josh before today. We were all eager to do so. Um, Emily and Josh share uh, sort of a similar background in that Emily's, uh, you know, as you know, former CIA, Josh's former FBI, two agencies don't really always get along, so there's some good-natured ribbing and talking about uh, how they each <laughs> came up through the ranks. Um, we were pissed, though, at Josh for one thing, which is that he didn't bring his dog. Uh, Josh, if you follow him online, has a corgi that is adorable. His name is Wilshire because um, Josh used to live on Wilshire Boulevard when he was assigned to the L.A. FBI office. And even though we invited uh, Corgi uh, Wilshire, you'll, you'll hear that Josh didn't think we were serious. Anyway, um, absent talking to, to Wilshire, it was great talking to Josh. He and I had a long exchange uh, we spent a good chunk of time talking about 2016 and 2017. Um, obviously, he and I have different vantage points and different perspectives and probably different blood pressure levels talking about it. But it was, while not cathartic, it was a good exchange. And I hope people, you know, find it as interesting listening to it as, as we did having it. All right. With that, let's take a listen. Enjoy. SCI. I think I'm a little nicer in real life than I am on Twitter. It's not hard. Welcome to Unredacted, and I am Emily Brandwin, CIA spy girl on Twitter, and I'm here with Philippe Reines. Hey, Philippe. Hi, Emily. That sounded so radio, didn't it? <laughs> um, and I'm super excited today because we are joined by the one, the only, Josh Campbell, who you know on CNN as the law enforcement analyst, and he spent 12 years at the FBI. He was the special assistant to Director Comey. I'm sure Philippe will have some questions there. Did you say super excited? To I am super. You know why oh, I'm great. super excited, Josh? Why is that? Because I, I generally didn't think you existed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because, and I'll, a little backstory, and then I'm going to reintroduce you, is that yes. we have interacted so much on social media. We're on text change now with two other folks on um, CNN. That's Sam, all redacted. Yes. It's all re unredacted. Yeah. A girl named San, I'll protect her last name, Minigrad, <laughs> and Masha Mangrappa. Um, nailed it. Nailed it. And every time we've been in the same city, we've always made plans to meet up with Josh. And Josh always has a, and I'm using air quotes, a reason why he cannot make it. Whether he has Navy reservists, quotes, or I have a job at the CNN that I have to do. And so there's always been a reason. So I am now convinced that Josh was a bot. Except when he says he's on CNN, you could turn on CNN and see him on CNN, which... But it's different sitting which, across from me right now, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a lot, it's a, in the flesh... I'm poking She's poking him. me. I'm a human being. Yeah, I'm like, oh, he's a real person. Well, feelings. we all met. We met the old-fashioned way on Twitter. On Twitter, and then in a it, podcast studio. <laughs> it's welcome to 2019. <laughs> Which is so weird because I always, I think I said it before. I said 10 years ago, if you would say, "Hey, I'm meeting up with somebody I've never met before. I met on social media," they'd say, "Oh, you're going to be killed." Right. Are you crazy? Well, I don't know. 10 years ago was Facebook. That was. Would you ever met? Would you ever meet someone on Facebook you never knew and you just had interactions on Facebook with? To this day, I don't meet people that I don't want to meet or that an algorithm tells me to meet. <laughs> you know, come to think of it, I didn't actually tell anyone where I was going, which was a fail on my part. Because when you're going to meet strangers, you should always yeah. let someone okay. know. Note that, folks. And you didn't bring the guard dog. I don't have the dog. I wasn't sure if he was allowed in here. Oh. I'm kicking myself because I, I meant to 
to tell Emily to really not just tell you could, but to encourage you next time. Wait a minute. Yeah. Did I not encourage you to bring Wilshire? Well, you, well, you did, but I didn't know if there was like an OSHA violation or you know if he's allowed inside a place of business. All these rules. You know, I'm a person. I of think rules. you're listening right now. All the lies people have I told work, you about why they can't bring your dog. I I'm work, sorry, Josh, but we have OSHA violations. <laughs> By the way, that pertains to humans. These not, are two different orientations and, and chairs. here. <laughs> Let's talk about orientation. So I worked for a place that was by the book rules. Emily, not so much. No. And that's manifesting right here in this discussion. Clearly. It's back to you were former FBI and it's to me, it's the it's like the it's like the good like angel on your shoulder. And I was the CIA. So it was sort of the devil on your shoulder. Mm. And I see it even now when there's text exchanges and people say, oh, what do you think? And Josh always has really good reasoned advice that's like so kind and lovely. And I'm like, (laughs) do the opposite. Let it burn. Scorch earth. But that goes back to, I think, the FBI and law and order and and rules and regulations. Was that always something that was part of who you were growing up? Uh, I mean, I wish I could say that, no, I was, you know, had this raucous uh, (laughs) upbringing. Uh, But yeah, no, I've always been boring. So I just naturally gravitated to a place that's by the book. (laughs) That's not, FBI is not boring. Okay, fair enough. Did you know when you were little that you wanted to be... When you were little, Josh, did you know that Big Josh was going to go into the FBI? No. So little Josh and then uh, uh, gradually growing up Josh thought actually uh, Philippe's previous line of work in the State Department would have been uh, something that I would be interested in in the diplomacy route. Um, but it was actually uh, 9-11. I was a college freshman about one week into my college career when the 9-11 attacks happened. And up to that point, everything that I was really gearing up for was this degree, uh, uh, preparing for a career overseas in some type of fashion and diplomacy. But at that point, when that happened, I wasn't feeling that diplomatic. Um, <laughs> and so, like many of us, you, know, you had this visceral response. And so what I decided, you know, I'm seeing these first responders and then the people that were uh, conducting the investigation, that, that that's what I want to do go after the bad guys. Um, and obviously the diplomats do great work, you know, God bless them. They, you know, they're on the, uh, the forefront uh, while we sit here at home to include your former uh, colleagues, the CIA. Um, but yeah, so that's what led to the FBI. And uh, while I was in college, I did an internship with the Bureau and then got hired on after I graduated and the rest is history. How is the internship? There's one at the CIA where you could, a lot of college students do it and people don't know you can actually get gainful employment and you kind of go in as an intern they call it a co-op program Mm -hmm. you get your tssci clearance which is your highest clearance that you hear people talk about on the news but it's a real gateway to get young talent who are eager to work for the fbi cia or the government agency and i was wondering is it the same sort of thing at the fbi it is yeah and let me let this serve as a pitch to the young people out there listening that this is a great launching pad to these uh, careers in these agencies so with the fbi at the time each field office so the 56 field offices they were allowed to choose one intern to go to headquarters for the summer. Uh, And I went to school in Austin, Texas, so I was in the San Antonio division and got selected as the intern for that division, went to headquarters. And as you mentioned, that's the launching pad. And it's it's a way for them to test you, right? Is this person like human debris or do we want to hire this person eventually? Um, And then it's your opportunity to test them, right? Are these people like creepy? Like what what is this, you know, government uh, secret organization here? Um, And and if at, at the end of that, internship both sides determine that this is for us then that very much serves as a launch pad in uh, certain ways i always say it's like a mutual audition you're auditioning right. them they're auditioning you and it's i think especially for young people going in as interns or co-ops it's such a different world it's mm. sort of like you're going into space and it's the final frontier because you can't do anything that you would do normally like when you went in did you go we had two different phones and you mm. would have the phone that you would talk to inside for classified you know, conversation or someone where, you know, your mom would call and say, hey, are you coming over for dinner? And I, was, and I just was baffled. I'm like, well, why do I have two phones? Why do I have two bags where I put my trash in? Like, what do I put in this trash? And it was everything about it was jarring. And I think it's it was it's interesting mindset, especially when you're young to go, OK, this is now this world. It is. It's, it's certainly especially coming from a college student, right, where you're not used to this level of um, uh, oversight of everything that you do. Uh, so you have the different classification systems that you mentioned. You have your own telephone. 
Um, your telephone is monitored as we learned through uh, hypothetically a couple employees texting each other, you know, inside the FBI recently. Um, so all that's monitored and employees kind of know that. So that's kind of a different, uh, obviously orientation. And it's kind of funny because that sticks with me to this day. So for example, yesterday I was at my office here at CNN and I had a visitor that was coming and I thought, Oh my God, I didn't give them 24 hour notice that there's, and then I thought, wait a minute, no, that's the FBI. That's not here. You know, they have to go through security background checks, all this kind of stuff. So, uh, it is a, di- it is different than the private sector. Do you ever still get? I still get a little bit paranoid about things Mm. and I people always joke and they say you can take the girl out of the CIA but Mm. you can't but I do like when I'm talking shit about somebody I'll look at my phone to make sure my phone's off (laughs) because I know I've probably done that so apologies to anybody but I'm and sometimes when I throw things away in the trash I'll make sure I'm like oh is this okay and I'll rip it up and I I'm still very hyper you know vigilant yeah sure or is that does that still stay with you in your dna now? yeah definitely because it's because it's always like if you think about it i mean the the there's a reason behind all of that inside government so whenever you're uh you, you know utilizing good operational security techniques and tactics it's for Op- a purpose opsec opsec as, as the kid, cool kids say um it sticks with you right because it's for a purpose and there are certain areas uh like for example i mean when i go into a restaurant for example i mean my and it's just kind of built in like just you do a sweep of the place i'm sure probably same way it's like okay who's in this place with me um where are the exits and you know all the the, the typical things um it's really interesting no longer carrying a firearm right, as a federal <laughs> agent because then you have to determine okay that would have been the primary uh go-to if there's some kind of dangerous incident um and now that's not the case right so it's just you know okay what else is at my disposal um so yeah it's it's, it's a different way of life and a spork now is at your disposal well you know it's funny too and, and this is interesting because you, you you do notice a lot more um for example so i was going again this happened yesterday i was going to work and there was a um i won't say the company but in the parking lot of this company early in uh, in the morning here in la i drive by and there are commuters kind of walking around and i look over and there's this huddle of 12 people that are standing there in plain clothes American sedans parked in the car. I mean, parked in the parking lot. And one guy pulls out a jacket and says FBI on the side. And I'm like, holy cow, like this is an FBI group that's about to conduct an operation or maybe they're debriefing after something that they just did. People are walking by completely oblivious <laughs> to what's going on. I'm like, holy cow, this is so cool. So you do notice like certain things. That's also LA. And I actually rolled up on him. I was like, hey, what's up, guys? They were, they were just filming a movie. They were, that's right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you you know, were on the set of Lethal Weapon I didn't even seven. think about that. So... <laughs> As I, I'll speak my own experience, coming in at a very young age was an intern and then getting hired on right out of college. You, you know, you also, there's a certain level of accepted, uh, uh, you don't have that much responsibility, so you can make mistakes, right? So if you hire an ad executive who's been doing it for 25 years and they walk in the door, there's certain expectations, whereas if you're young, not so. I mean, you, obviously they don't want you screwing up, but you really get a chance to learn and soak up, you know, the things that are around you. Um, and then if you stay with the organization, you know, they did for uh, about a dozen years, um, you're slowly able to, you're able to learn and then you're able to apply what you learned. And then what's interesting is you actually see the next generation or two coming behind you. It's like, wow, that's so great. Like that was me. Um, and I actually did some mentoring. My, actually, you'll love this. So my first, uh, I, was, I would talk to interns that would come through and I'd say, okay, first thing, this is what took me a while to learn is before you're going to fire off this flaming email of, of hatred or, or, you know, righteous indignation, just walk around, take a walk around the block and then come back, which, cause I was famous for that. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, but now older Josh, like, uh, I obviously would choose things differently, at least I hope. Uh, but it is interesting seeing the next generation come up and they're just as energetic, I think, as uh, people like, you know, we were at the time. All three of us, I think, have been in that position where at some point you're like, holy cow, like we're we're it. Like we're the ones in the room doing whatever it is that we're doing. And the U.S. government is entrusting us with this responsibility. Suckers. It's a pretty amazing. Thing. Yeah, exactly. For better or worse. It's kind of an amazing thing. No, I mean, it is very sobering and it's, you know, to get corny, it's it's an honor. On your first day of the FBI, did you think that you were going to be a lifer? Or, you know, you go in for the 20 years for the for the pension. And, you know, my more specific question is, if you go back to 2014 before all the troubles, <laughs> did you think come spring of 2017 you would not be in the FBI? Or but for what happened in 2016, would you still be an FBI agent right now? I think I would. I think, um, and again, you know, we never know what the future brings, right? Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to plan. Um, 
you know, I say that no five-year plan that I ever had has actually turned, you know, turned out the way it was planned. But yeah, so for me, it was actually, it, was, it wasn't staying in 20 years. I actually looked beyond that. Yeah. I, I was thinking, okay, when are they going to kick me out the door? And I actually uh, calculated it. So I came in, as I mentioned, you know, young as uh, out, of uh, out of college and then worked for a couple of years before I was old enough to become an agent and then went to the academy. And so coming in young, I would, I actually, and I say get, I, not have, I uh, would have gotten to serve 25 years nearly as an agent rather than the 20, uh, because you have to serve a you know, certain amount of time. You have to be a certain age, uh, 50 years old before you retire. And so for me, I was like, wow, I'm going to get to do a lot more than a lot of other people. Like they kick them out the door 20 years. Like I'm going to get to stay on so, so much longer. So I say that to say like, this was, um, this was a career that I, I loved. I mean, just to my core and I get to do all these, you know, great things with the organization, go to faraway places and, and, and I hope, you know, help people. You, you won, I'm just going to interject because you won't brag about yourself. You won four FBI combat theater awards, which is huge. So, uh, well, thank you. So the FBI, you know, folks think about a domestic force for law enforcement, but they also have this uh, robust overseas presence as well. Um, and so the FBI will actually send agents to do rotations in different war zones around the world. Uh, embedded with the military, embedded with your former peeps. If they're over there, we're not saying that For, they are. Yeah, uh, hypothetically. Um, and so that's just one of the ways that, that they, um, uh, you know, I guess I don't want to say honor. That's kind of weird. But they credit that services, you know, with these awards. Um, anyway, but so that was my focus, right, staying with the organization. And you mentioned, like, was there something happened or was it a date? December 17th, 2017. I remember the day. It was uh, the I president. Yeah. President walked out of the Oval Office uh, toward Marine One, spinning rotors under a high ceiling, you know, low, uh, low ceiling of, of gray clouds. And he walked to the, to the microphone and he said, it's a shame what's happened to the FBI. It's a disgrace what's happened to the FBI. And I remember I was sitting here watching that. And of course, you know, we had seen these ongoing attacks against the FBI, against Robert Mueller. Um, and being on the inside at the time, you know, folks, and it didn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat or if they're conservative or you know, progressive, it was just, it started as frustration and then it built to just anger. Like, what is he doing? And, you know, it was obvious what he was doing. He was trying to discredit this agency for the sole purpose of trying to undermine whatever it was that Mueller would actually come up with. But, you know, I, I don't think the president intended to destroy the reputation of the FBI. I think this was like a byproduct. He just wants to win the news cycle on a given day. But that was, that was the, the ultimate result was he was, you know, ruining the credibility of this agency. And so we're all sitting around like, okay, you know, what, when is this going to stop? Um, and the irony of that was he was actually getting ready to fly on a helicopter out to Quantico to the FBI Academy uh, to give a speech. And he wasn't going to speak to FBI agents, which this was an important distinction. He was speaking to a group of cops that were gathered from around the country. And, you know, the, the White House had billed this as he's going to talk to the FBI. Well, technically, he was at the FBI, but he was it was a much different audience. Um, but that really struck me. I thought, you know, wow, if this is going to continue, then this agency that I love is going to continue to face these attacks. And then um, I'm rambling. But the one last thing is that a lot of us were talking to each other, like, who's going to step up and stand up for us? And at the time, we had a brand new director, so no one thought that he was going to, you know, um, obviously he's still getting his, his feet uh, under him, but in the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions, Rod Rosenstein, silence. These attacks on the agency, calling us corrupt, calling us criminals, out to get them a deep state cabal, no top cover until they were personally attacked. So what I, I became to that realization to look, if this is going to continue, I can actually do more good for this agency by stepping outside the FBI and speaking up, not in its defense, because it, you know they screw stuff up, but to defend them against unfair political attacks, because I thought the American people were being manipulated. So that's that's how that all started. So when did you actually leave? Uh, so it was the end of January of uh, 2018. 2018, right? And then what was your assignment once Director Comey left until you until you left? So I was uh, so my assignment with Comey as his special assistant. It was a year and a half assignment, and so I was about a year in whenever he uh, was fired here in L.A. And so I stayed on an additional about another six months to the end of that that term assignment and worked for Andrew McCabe, uh, who then succeeded him, um, and then got promoted back out here to Los Angeles. Uh, and so I was actually here in the LA field office um, whenever I departed and went to CNN. I make a point to talk to someone in the FBI every single day. And it's for two reasons. First of all, not uh, because I have a lot of friends there, right? That, you know, when, yeah. you, when you, and you know how it is, like yeah. you have these insular groups, right? And with these agencies and departments. Um, so, hey, I have friends there, but then also, and this sounds kind of cheesy, but I, like I want them to know, like they're not alone in this. This will actually have uh, 
long-term consequences because not only do you have people leaving in the in the immediate and i understand how strange that is for someone who just left to then be complaining about people leaving um and just as a side note there and i've had long conversations with some of my former colleagues who asked well you know should we leave and i tell them like no stay like we need good people my my issue was i thought okay you know i want to use whatever talents and skills i i have to communicate the real nature of this organization in a way that can help the public. Um, but the irony here is that, you know, the president and his allies talk about this deep state inside the FBI. <laughs> I realized that if I had stayed in the FBI and anonymously leaked about how terrible things are in the president, <laughs> that would have been a deep state. But I thought, okay, that's, that would be proving their point, right? If you do that kind of thing. So it, it, this is the right way to do it, to step out. But the long-term consequences, as I say, is that not only do you lose people in the immediate term, but it, I'm speaking specifically about the FBI, is that applications for special agent positions are down. Yeah. And so they have to fill those classes, which means that they're going to have to lower standards. standards. And so you're going to have people coming on board for that maybe spend two, you know, two decades there who may have not have been of that quality or caliber that we would have expected that today or you know a year ago. Uh, which again, that's the long-term factor. Was the attrition rate? Because I know for the CIA, when you go to the farm, it's it was huge, and they kick people out all the time. And they gave you like the speech, like turn left and right, they won't be there. And I thought it was horseshit <laughs> until the next day, and you're like, oh, the guy to my right isn't here. Was it the same? It has to be the same way at Quantico. So actually, no, it's it's a little bit different uh, because they do so much vetting on the front end because uh, you have to go through these interviews, you have to go through these tests, and all of this. And so basically, by the time you get there. They've already invested so much okay. into your background. Like you really have to. Um, Do you have to actively fuck up in you order to get? Act- yeah, up? that's one way to put it. Okay. Yeah. Um, or they just determine, okay, maybe they're not cut out for this. And and that's not to say that people don't drop out of the classes. Um, uh, for example, if you know firearms proficiency, right? I mean, you can you can be a great agent, you can be a great legal scholar, but if you cannot manipulate a firearm for whatever reason, this isn't a, a judgment. It's you cannot be an FBI agent. So people, you know, sometimes leave. And that doesn't mean that they leave the FBI. Sometimes they can go into other positions that don't require them uh, to carry a firearm. Uh, but yeah, but I found just and I'm speaking about my class yeah. that, that I think we lost one person, which is. But yeah, so I was just curious how that was. And if if the standards do get dropped, then it's it's dangerous. And it ends up because it used to be something that everybody would want to apply to. I, I applied to the FBI. What happened? I applied simultaneously to the FBI, the CIA, NYPD, Peace Corps. What? Yeah. You were going to go to the Peace Corps? I, I, I was graduating college. I was graduating later in life. I was 29. I had just gotten, it was my last semester, which had been this huge struggle. And it was spring break um, or just finished midterms. And I realized oh shit, I'm finally finishing this thing that I should have finished eight years ago and I don't know what I'm doing. And I just went online and started applying to anything. I, I really had wanted to somewhat, you know, in some way, uh, public service. Mm. And um, it was 2000 and it was the, the presidential campaign. And I went to Tennessee, to Nashville to work for the Gore campaign. Um, to me, that was all kind of the same thing and it, and it was a kind of holding pattern, but um, no, I I I have the highest regard for people going to law enforcement. I'm I'm jealous that I that I never did. Did you go through any of the process? Did you get interviewed or polygraphed? By the or time I no no because I went to I went to Gore I went to Nashville so fast. Okay, it was much faster than any of the bureaucracies kicked in, <laughs> and I I remember when I came back to New York to to home I had this like stack of mail <laughs> of like. You know, your NYPD exam is next week. And the, the, the best letter I got was the return address was like CST. Hmm. I'm sorry. The return address was, was the Peace Corps. Oh, I was The like, return address was the Peace me. Corps. And, it, and I was rejected from the Peace Corps. I was like, <laughs> how do you get rejected from the Peace Corps? And the letter said, due to your answer uh, to question number 13, we have to reject your. And I'm like, what's what question was, 13? Did wow. I say What did you that say? I, Question 13 was, are you now or have you ever applied to an agency of the United States government involved in foreign espionage? You can't. Wow. Yeah, you can't you can't apply to the CIA if you've done it's the same thing. I got, done, I got rejected by the Peace Corps. <laughs> and you answered truthfully, so the CIA was like, nah, we're not. Like, we don't want you anymore. Um But what but what regardless of whether it's politics or law enforcement or intelligence, I think that, you know, again, I, I walk down the street here in Hollywood near my office and I think, wow, you know, all these people are going about their day and 
you know, God bless them. They might be in the private sector. They might be doing all these kind of things. But how many of them have a mission that's oriented towards, you know, the greater good as it relates to our country and our policies? And so, and the, uh, this isn't just a toot our horn because we're just like three of us yeah. sitting around here, but I think it is different that whether it's politics, State Department, CIA, FBI, uh, it's good that there are people out there that see that as a mission that they want to be a part of. Uh, and, and I hope that continues even beyond this, you know, this troubling period that we're in. What we need and what we're going to get, I think, are two different things. And once you open or once you cross that, you know, once you destroy that norm one time, it's so hard. To, I'm with you. I hope I hope we get back to that. But it's, it just seems so easy now that, you know, OK, if the current model doesn't work and it's based on norms rather than laws, hell with it. Just blast through, you know, and obviously there are long term consequences. I don't consequences. think anyone thought, you know, we had all these systems and granted a lot of them were written 250 years ago but they held up pretty well mm-hmm. um they knew what they were doing they knew what they were doing they built in safeguards formal and otherwise and society had other you know informal safeguards whether it was the media or just third parties and i don't think anyone ever anticipated someone just saying no and it, you know <laughs> to me the the analogy is like a guardrail on the highway mm-hmm. if you're driving at 2 a.m and you're dozing off and you skim the guardrail it wakes you up but if you're in a tractor trailer and you intentionally drive at the guardrail it's not going to stop you right. <laughs> and that's you know we're all stuck in this tractor trailer with this you know looney tune you know this has been described as a stress test period right for the country in many different ways. And it's interesting, you know, again, coming from someone who was in a non-political world, right? So this isn't a partisan uh, statement, but it ver- the system is being stress tested. And what's interesting is that, again, I don't think that, and, and this isn't partisan because I, I don't think that the president, again, wakes up every day thinking, how am I going to destroy norms and customs and, you know, destroy these guardrails? I think, again, whatever it is that, that gets the White House through a daily news cycle they're going to do it, and they're going to keep going. And even if that includes undermining law enforcement, undermining the intelligence community, you know, saying that Obama wiretap Trump Tower, you know, whatever it takes to convince a certain segment of society that the president is a victim, he's going to keep doing that. And so here's here's there's one of two things are going to happen. Either this is going to continue, and you're going to have people that remain silent. And I'm talking specifically about the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, people who are in these high profile positions who can stand up and put their hand up and say stop. You know, my, my old adage, which I don't, I probably stole this from someone, but, you know, you have to be willing to lose your job to do your job. And we're not seeing a lot of that right now. We're not seeing people stand up and say, look, this has to stop. And so if people like that continue to stay quiet, then we're going to see this continued destruction, and I fear for where we go. However, it kind of feels like a groundswell, where you have people who may not even cared about the ins and outs of the Justice Department you know, back in the day, who now see that and think, wow, there are long-term consequences of public safety because of what's happening. I hope that even if the impetus is just to shame people yeah. into stepping up and speaking out, then that's what's happened. That, then, then that would actually it will happen, uh, but I think it's yet to be seen. When when Mueller was appointed, did you what did because I would wanted you to tell your story about when you worked with him and mm. had your interaction. Did you for you was that a, a, a point of relief? Yes, it was a point of relief uh, not only for me but for people inside the FBI in two respects because you have to remember this was right after James Comey's firing, um, where the uh, special counsel counsel was appointed, and I was actually there the day that Mueller came back to headquarters for the first time since he had been named. And you know, I write about this in this book I'm working on, where it's so you know you had the sense of relief washing over the agency, where okay, our former director is back, and he's in a position where he can independently figure out what in the hell is going on here, uh, for better or worse, right? Whether or not the president's complicit, you know, whether he's innocent, whatever. We have a good man who's independent who's going to do that. And so it was actually it was surreal seeing him, you know, drive up into the basement garage at, at FBI headquarters and then, you know, taking him up where he then took the baton in the Russia investigation and was briefed in and, and um, you know, provided the, the initial, uh, uh, you know, briefings in the case that he was now going to run. And so what was interesting, though, at that time is that I don't think what anyone expected, and I, and I you know, certainly didn't expect, but that someone like him would then become a target of attack by not only the president, because, again, I mentioned he's in survival mode, right? He's trying to whatever gets him yeah. through the day, um, but also his party, which that's been the most fascinating 
to watch the you know quote unquote party of law enforcement, the you know rule of law, get behind these attacks so much so that now you turn on a hearing. You know we just had uh, we've had no, several hearings lately, but you have these republicans in congress who were parroting this deep state cabal they now tick off the names of people inside the fbi who were since who've been fired or left it's almost it's rote memory now trying to continue with that narrative that this is a corrupt organization so um so yes so that that was what it was like when he arrived it's been uh, fascinating and, and disheartening to talk to you know a lot of my colleagues now since this period of attack because i think man this was a this was a an american hero yeah. who's now become an enemy and that just shows you if that can happen to him, I mean, Who that can happen to anyone. The ultimate hero. Right. T- tell us what it was like because you were with Director Comey the day that he was fired. Yes. Here, here in L.A. That's right. About uh, two years ago yesterday. Spare no detail. Unless, spare, you, yes. unless you have to spare it. Spare well, no it was a cloudy morning when we left Washington. <laughs> um, no, so we, we started out, uh, we left Washington. It was going to be a, a heck of a day because we had to fly from D.C. down to Florida. Uh, and, and just to back up, so Comey was uh, very much a person who wanted to get outside the Beltway because the FBI is a deployed force, right? 56 field offices, 400 satellite offices. The troops are, are not inside Washington, D.C. Obviously, there are a number of them there, but for the most yeah. part, uh, they're deployed. And so he would always want to go see them just to buck them up, to brief them on the latest, you know, what's going on. So anyway, he was always on the road. And so we started again in D.C., flew down to Florida, uh, did an event there, and then headed west uh, here to Los Angeles. And what was interesting for me is that this was my former office, and so I was kind of coming back home, so to speak. Um, it, it was kind of like show and tell. Look who I brought. You know, <laughs> it's, here's Comey. Um, and so we, uh, he was actually coming to speak to a diversity recruitment event here in West Hollywood. Uh, one of his big things was he looked at the number of uh, uh, minority agents inside the FBI and saw that it was like 83% white, and that was on the incline. And so he said, okay, we have to do something about that. So they created this program where they would actually recruit highly qualified uh, people of color uh, from business organizations Smart. and you know different uh, organizations in the community to then come here like for him to pitch them on why they should come join the FBI. So that's w- what was scheduled here. We arrived early, and so we asked if he can go to the field office and just meet the troops and walk around and say hi to everybody. So uh, we were doing that, and you know he was making laps around different floors. And at one point, we're in the command center here at the Los Angeles field office, uh, and he's addressing a group of employees. And it's interesting because I had, by this point, and Philippe, I know you know this feeling, where you perfect doing other things on your phone while you're like listening to the principal do whatever he or she they're doing, right? And you can hear subtle changes in tone of voice. Tone of voice. Or if a TV is on in the background, you could hear Wolf Blitzer's tenor <laughs> changes a little bit, not to mention the breaking news banner. Yes. You hear everything yes. uh, to include silence. And that's yes. what happened here where I was actually on, the, on my phone uh, tapping out what we we're gonna do next, and it, and I just noticed, wow, silent. I looked over, and he's looking. Comey's looking at me, and he's and he's uh, you know nodding to the back of the room where there were two TVs. One was Fox News, one was CNN, oh, and Jesus. on Fox it says Comey resigns, and so he was taken aback. He's like, well, I would know if I resigned, right? So th- what is going on here? And then it was actually CNN's uh, Jeff Zeleny who came on just right after that said Comey has been fired. He was uh, standing up at, outside the White House, uh, and so then it's like okay, well, what is going on? And so Comey continues to address uh, the rest of the group. He didn't want to just run off stage, right? Um, and so I called back to Washington, and I, and I talked to one of the uh, senior people back there, and he was on his way home. He had no idea what was going on, so he turned back around. And so uh, in short order, we learned that they basically dropped off a letter, you know, at the escort desk um, saying, serious? you've been fired. Yeah, yeah. It was Keith it, Schiller. Keith Schiller, that's who right. Has been, who was Donald Trump's personal bodyguard for decades, former NYPD. Donald Trump gave him the letter that they had for days been drafting with various versions and motivations. Keith Schiller took it over to the Hoover building and like gave someone to told like, him se- give it to security and was like, Here, Well, he thought he thought he thought Comey was in the house. <laughs> they didn't even know where Jesus he was. Christ. Yeah. Well, what was funny too is I talked to a reporter who was <laughs> they can't even fire people. I was like, right? they can't even fire people correctly. <laughs> well, even... I, I talked to a reporter who was um who was walking by the Hoover building as this happened and he looked and he saw a Secret Service vehicle illegally parked right in front of the building with the lights flashing. And he looked and outsteps Keith Schiller. And so he actually started thinking, wow, what is that guy doing here? And why does he have this envelope? And so that was like the initial, okay, something's going on. And then, you know, they found out in short order. Um, I'm sure it was a very beautiful letter. It was, yeah. What well, was that conversation when you called your buddy where you're like, hey, so um, 
Heads up, I think Comey's been fired. No, so I was seeking information. I said, what is going on? He said, I don't know, you tell me. He said, what happened? I said, well, what happened? And we're both in this weird, like, <laughs> he goes, no, no, stop. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, oh, okay, well, let's start there. So the boss has just been fired. <laughs> He's like, oh, you know, my God. And he was far more senior than I was. So he does a U-turn and heads back, you know, to the building. Um, but so that happens. And then it, it, it got more ridiculous. So, um, you know, Obviously, we're trying to make sense of what's going on, and there was this question about, well, do we stay in L.A.? And I grabbed one of the bodyguards, a good friend of mine, and I said, you know, let's get him home. We were supposed to overnight here in L.A., and uh, I said, you know, if this were you or me, like, we wouldn't want to be sitting in Marina Del Rey Marriott, right? We'd want to be with our family. And so um, it was actually it got a little tense a little bit because the the pilots were out of their flight hours for the day because we had been flying to Florida and L.A. And so it turned into this big uh, kind of deal where they're trying to find another crew. They found a crew in Colorado that could fly us back like half the way. So anyway, so fast forward, we ultimately got the waiver to, to go all the way back from the FAA. Uh, but but one thing that made me really furious is as we were getting ready to leave, I get a phone call from one of the lawyers at uh, headquarters and says, hey, I'm just a messenger but you guys stand by because we're not actually sure he's going to be able to fly back on that government jet. So what are you talking about? I said, well, the DOJ, they're hemming and hawing over whether he's not an employee or whatever. The plane was going back to Washington, whether Jim Comey was on it or not. And obviously I'm the last person to defend Jim Comey, but that is... It was disgusting. That's petulant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I enjoy where it's going. Do you have any any other defense you want to offer? (laughs) (laughs) The floor is yours. (laughs) His family seems very nice. Very nice. So so that's that's the point that I made, exactly what you just said to the lawyer. So look, this plane's going back. You have eight of us here. So you have the two pilots, communicator, the security detail, me... We're going home. We're going to leave it? him behind right. at, at the San, at the Marina Del Rey Marriott? Right. So what, is he going to fly United like on the way back, you know? And so uh, so anyway, so I, I I turned off my phone. I'm like, okay, this is nonsense. Like I'm not, you know, whatever. I'll just plausible deniability or whatever. Um, but so anyway, so we end up making it back home. And, and it's funny on that story. So we actually roll up to LAX, to the, the Gulf Stream that's sitting there. And one of the security guards uh, said, sir, you know, we're going to pull right up to the stairs we just need you to, you know, get right on the airplane because the place is crawling with press oh. and onlookers and everyone. And so it really struck me at the moment. You know, sometimes I kind of time kind of stops at certain points. And so I thought, you know what, this is this is terrible because I've flown with them to, you know, probably 100 cities in my, my course of, you know, working with them. And at every single time, he always told me yeah. to make time to talk to the cops. Because everywhere he'd go, he'd have a local police detail that would, you know, uh, run the routes and, you know, clear lanes and everything and just over there for his own protection. And so we wanted to talk to them. And I thought, you know what, this is the last time he's ever going to be able to do that. And not for nothing, why should he be running? Like, he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. And so um, I just kind of leaned over. I said, you know, you've, you've never forgotten about the cops. And so that, that image, if you watch that video again, you see him get out. You see the security detail get out. They head to the airplane. He buttons around the front of the Suburban. And he sits there and talks. And as Philippe said, it's that image that the president saw that fear and fury. It looked like he was taking a sweet time. I mean, you know, we take it for granted now that because we talk about it every day that he fired the FBI director and he fires this, fires that. It was Titanic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, uh, what, a month or not even that much further after the director had gone to the Senate and said that he was authorized to say that there is, in fact, an inv- I mean, the, this was a bombshell. Yeah. And, um, so this is a good segue to my to my uh, three yeah. minute. <laughs> so you and I have not a hundred reasons to not get along, but we've got a big one. Wow! And um, <laughs> but we do. I'm glad you have some time. I don't I know really, why. You, no, I, I know why you didn't go in the Peace Corps. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> if you well, being a diplomat wasn't any better. Um, I we were we were in the same moment of history on the other side of the wall. You know, you were next to Jim Comey during the whole 2016 and I was next to Hillary Clinton maybe not always physically but when we talk about what happened in 2016 I just don't understand a lot of what director Comey decided and and specifically um you know I we all joke about but her email but her email was also my email I mean yeah. <laughs> anyone who wants to go mm-hmm. through her email and search my name and um I remember the first email she sent me in 2007 I didn't I was like who sent this I don't recognize the address <laughs> and um, it was a stupid mistake that we made and not anyone's fault other than our own that we made it but it triggered off an even stupider furor and scandal and you know I spent uh, three hours with the FBI on um, New Year's Eve 2016 being interviewed about what I knew about her email practices and 
you know, how she used her Blackberry. And um, July 5th, 2016 is a day that will, you know, live in political infamy. Mm -hmm. um, where Jim Comey basically said Hillary Clinton is the most horrible, terrible, evil, innocent person in American political history. And I remember sitting there in my office. There was no warning of it. And she had only been interviewed. I think that was a Tuesday. Mm. And Monday was a holiday. It was July 4th. And she'd only been interviewed that weekend. So we didn't expect any kind of word for some time. Not forever. But he spoke for like 12 minutes. For the first 11 minutes, you couldn't tell where this was going. <laughs> like if he had said, if the punchline was we've decided to indict that speech would have held up until minute 12 where it would have just been. And therefore we have now issued an indictment and, you know, he wasn't supposed to do that. And, um, and the reason for that is the FBI, which we've now seen in the case of Mueller, although they're not exactly the same thing. When someone's innocent, you're not supposed to talk about how close they were to not being innocent or how bad they were. Cause that's just not the way it works. And there are rules in the government and specifically the department of justice and the FBI. And Comey uh, explained that, rationalized that, that he made that decision because he felt people, it was such a big deal, people were owed an explanation. And he didn't trust his boss, the Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and in part made the joke about the tarmac, but he decided, he being Comey, decided that because of this interaction, that his boss was, Lynch was somehow not objective and had this relationship for working for Bill Clinton. And there was a separate item I believe that he believed that she was but there was a deputy attorney general Sally Yates and arguably Jim Comey should have said Madam Deputy Secretary I I think the attorney general has a has a conflict um, I'm putting this on your plate somehow he decided unilaterally to just go give this televised just absolutely scathing report which, you know, I, I appear on Fox a fair amount, and I go in there, and it's like the movie Get Out. Like, <laughs> I feel <laughs> like they're looking to see if they can take my eyes, if they can harvest my body for, you know, Britt Hume, who needs a new, <laughs> needs a new brain. And I'll see the most heinous of all heinous people. And it's amazing how often I'll see someone that would always struck me was uh, Ray DeGeneva. Or Ray DeGeneva. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just an absolute Clinton hater. First time I saw him, he's like, I can't believe Comey did that to your boss. <laughs> I was like, why? Because he never should have said anything that day. And when Rod Rosenstein wrote his report on why, it was, again, I mean, every every third party. And, um, you know, this week the director did this town hall, and he, uh, he said, I, I really hope Hillary Clinton doesn't think that I cost her the election. And I think the problem is most of America thinks Comey did something he shouldn't have done. Now— Half of America might think they're happy he did it because they benefited from it and they think she's terrible. But um, it's difficult. Then you fast forward to October where – in you know Huma Abedin is one of my closest friends. I've worked with her forever. And obviously she and her husband, this whole deal with the laptop. And it just – it didn't make sense at the time. It didn't make sense afterwards. And then we found out what was going on in parallel. <laughs> so – Jim Comey decides it's necessary to tell the United States that he thinks that she's extremely care careless. She did terrible things. Her staff did terrible things, but no reasonable prosecutor would pursue it. You then fast forward to October, says, hold on a second. We found another laptop. A couple days goes by. He says, okay, nothing on the laptop. False alarm. Meanwhile, we now know in hindsight that FISA warrants, right? you know, the hardest warrants, surveillance warrants are being issued, people associated with Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. You have these parallel things where, in hindsight, there's no question that, at the very least, they were equally important. I'm just trying to be generous. It was more 10 times uh, what Trump was doing or, or alleged to be doing or what was being investigated was 10 times worse. And the notion that the American people had a, had a right to know about her but not that, it just doesn't make sense. And... You know, people don't talk about it so much, but Mueller finished last month. Mueller went dark in October, you know, September, October, November of 2018 because the midterms were coming up. 
he just disappeared. And I guess I just, every time I see Jim Comey, I do not see someone evil. I do not see someone with a vendetta. I see someone who is just so sure of himself that he doesn't take a moment to wonder if he did the wrong thing. And I, I his rationale, which a lot of people use, is that if I'm making everyone mad, I'm doing the right thing. You know what? If you're making everyone mad, it's possible <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. And look, he can say, I don't think I cost you the election. I'm not a political consultant. I'm not a pollster. I think we could all agree that Jim Comey did not help Hillary Clinton. <laughs> At the very least, there was some damage there. And, you know, I guess I never expected, I thought in December 2016, when I was still trying to process all this, I thought I'd go to my deathbed never understanding, never knowing the full story. And it's amazing, three years later, we know a lot of the story. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot we don't know, but we know a lot, and it was worse than we thought. And I guess there's just this part of it that I don't understand, and I I know we're, we're both staffers. We're both good soldiers don't always agree with our bosses but so i'm not i'm not i'm curious your perspective not your defense not your answer not your because again you were on the other side of this just a different perspective and i honest to god i just want to understand because it's a big part of of altering history yeah so there's a and lot you have 30 seconds yeah there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> you, you should run for the senate that was pretty good um <laughs> no so and, and obviously a very serious issue but so here's laughter how, laughter helps it does. <laughs> I've learned yeah. laughter crying Bur- drinking bourbon overeating uh, so here, here's the way i look at this this whole issue right and there's obviously a lot there that yeah. you just that you just stated but the first thing that i always do when i when i talk to people is I think I think a mistake that people make, and I'm not saying that you are. Only no, I'm not going to get anyone's head, but I think people look at Donald Trump's actions and what has transpired since his election. Right? We've talked about the norm breaking and the rule breaking and all of that. And I think that when they see Jim Comey, I actually I know because I hear this invective from people. They say this guy is the reason we got him. And so, as uh, you know, as a non-political person, as someone who came from law enforcement. That's just completely 180 degrees from the way that, that law enforcement and intelligence media, for that matter, see these types of incidents. It's not a zero sum. You don't look at, okay, well, you know, if we're helping this person, we're hurting this person. And one thing that's interesting, what you just said, is that Jim Comey did no favors to Hillary Clinton. And I would respond, right, that's not law enforcement's job, right, to do favors for anyone. And so I think that if, if people are, are honest with themselves, they'll ask them that question. Obviously, you know, and I'll talk about the, his actions. But I think that's the first question. Am I mad at him because of what he did solely, or am I mad at him because he stopped her from being president and this is what we got, right? So that's a question. Then you get to the actual actions. And I've said time and again, like, I'm not here to defend Jim Comey's actions. He can do that himself, right? And especially now being in journalism, I, okay, I'll, I'll describe actions, but it's not my job to say, okay, uh, this is why he was right or this is why, you know, he was wrong. Uh, I do part company with that line of thinking whenever people attack him personally right they say what well, he's a terrible person and uh you know he's he's a leaker he's a liar all that that i'll take on because i know that's just that's not the person you know that i know i think what people have to understand is that you know one thing that you just said which still uh it's still curious to me is that you know you said you think that he's just so sure of himself right and i've heard that you're not the first person i've heard that from obviously people talk about oh he's sanctimonious and you know this ego like how is he so sure of himself it's actually like if if you were around him when he was making these decisions and saw that thought process that went into all these decisions it's actually what what I would you know I would say is probably rare in DC and that is a principal who's not starting out by telling his people this is what I'm going to do it starts out with okay how are we going to orbit this issue and you tell me what you think and then collecting information on all different you know different viewpoints uh, before he weighs in with his own opinion. Because as you know, when you're around powerful people, if they start out saying, this is what I think, the sycophants are then going to weigh in and say, wow, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. And so he was the opposite of that. Okay, how do we handle this situation? And, you know, obviously went through uh, a number of instances where now he gets um, obviously a lot of heat for. As he's described it, these were the least worst options, right? So talk about the press conference that that, that he held. So in his view, 
and I, and I take exception with what you said about uh, Loretta Lynch because he didn't think that she was compromised. He didn't think that she was um, a bad person. What he feared is that there was even a perception of that, that the FBI was in the tank with the, the Democrats, with, Hillary, uh, with uh, Loretta Lynch and Hillary Clinton, then that would destroy the FBI as a apolitical independent institution. And so what his view was, and you know, if you remember Loretta Lynch, who I think you know very highly of, I think one major mistake that she did was not recusing herself after that incident. Because what she did, if you remember, she didn't say, I'm taking myself out of the picture. She said, I'm going to accept Jim Comey's conclusions and that of the career prosecutors. But she didn't remove herself from the chain of command. And in fact, her own spokesman was saying, no, she's the decider. She's making decisions. And so you're in, you're in the FBI. You know that regardless of what em- you, you hand over recommendation, with her stamp on it, she's going to be the one releasing this. There's going to be that question as far as, okay, was the FBI corrupted by this, you know, law enforcement, uh, by DOJ, who may be in the tank with Hillary Clinton based on the perception. Again, I'm just talking about perception. Second thing, you talked about the substance of what he said. And, and I there I would agree with you um, on, you know, okay, go back in time. How do you change things? I think he's even said the same thing. I wouldn't have used, you know, that same language um, to describe her behavior. But the way he's described it is... There are certain cases inside the FBI, inside Justice, the Justice Department, where the public interest outweighs privacy, right, of an, of an individual American citizen. People are going to debate that forever. Uh, but what he thought was this is one of those instances because this is the person who's on the cusp of being president of the United States, possibly. This is the major party candidate. Half of the country is going to wonder, okay, if you put out a one-line statement saying nothing, no prosecution— they're going to want to know, okay, what did you do that brought you to that conclusion? What actions did you take? And it's interesting because I compare that to the Mueller report. The Mueller report is essentially the Jim Comey statement, right? This robust finding of, okay, we're not prosecuting him. We're not doing this, but here's all this bad stuff that, you know, that happened. Uh, obviously much, uh, much worse than what she did. Um, uh, you know, I was talking about like sloppy behavior, not criminality, but um, anyway, so I think that that was the calculus. Okay. If, if, our, if our goal is public trust and public confidence, how do we achieve that? And, and it's transparency. And the one last thing I'll say on him is that, again, going back to him as a person, if you go back and look <clears throat> at the decisions that he made, almost, I can't think of one that, that fits outside of this. Every decision was terrible for him personally, right? If he had just punted it to DOJ, ah, you know what, screw the FBI's reputation, this is going to be okay for me if I just say, Loretta Lynch, you do this. Or if all of a sudden we open the investigation and then Hillary Clinton gets elected president and then it turns out that she was under investigation this whole time and then that leads to more bad things, okay, the organization would have absorbed a terrible hit, but he would have been fine personally. So uh, anyway, that's the case. And then actually one last thing, let me just say, and then I'm sorry. With respect to Russia, the Trump Russia investigation, because that's another key point that I always get asked. Well, you talked about her. You didn't talk about the the Trump campaign. And again, I'm no fan of the behavior (laughs) that we've seen, you know, recently um, with people in Trump orbit. Obviously people have gone to jail. Um, But at the time, I think, I think it's apples and oranges because at that point, the Hillary Clinton investigation was complete, right, in July, whenever he announced it to the world, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, and then the letter in October reopening the investigation, again, he felt that, okay, I need to correct the record now to Congress. I've already told them this thing is closed. Whereas the Trump campaign investigation was very much in its infancy as a counterintelligence investigation. It was only months uh, old. And as you know, some cases don't turn into anything, Right. And so the FBI was undergoing that investigation in the infancy. And I asked, I asked him this for my book. I kind of grilled him. You know, I asked him, I said, so why didn't you announce that Trump, the Trump people were on investigation? Don't you think the American people owe that? And his response was, well, what would I have told them? That we've opened this campaign into these people. We don't know exactly what their role is. We don't know where it's going to lead. And oh, by the way, it's classified. And you're not going to hear anything else from us. I mean, that would have seen maybe political. So again, terrible situation, terrible options. But that's how he's explained a lot yeah, of this. So I've been trying to keep a mental list of, of things to go back to. I think a couple things. First off, I was saying the part about hindsight in Russia more as um, frustrating context. But let's for a moment pretend that she had been running against Jeb Bush and Jeb Bush did not collude to defraud the United States of America to his benefit. Let's just look at the her part of it. Um, You said that, you know. You were quoting me saying that he didn't do any her any favors, and you said he's not supposed to do her any favors. His job is also not to harm her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my point is that it's impossible to make the case that his decision did not have a, a negative political impact on her. The no second, doubt. I, I don't disagree with that, by the way. And, and the second thing is, 
the comparison between um, a lot of people like me saying he had no business on July 5th making that statement um, and then dying to hear what Mueller wrote is a very different thing. Bob Mueller was a special counsel, and by law, by statute, he had to present a report to the attorney general, and then they decided to release it. There are regulations at the Department of Justice and the FBI that are to prevent this very thing. And you use the word privacy, and I think you're just using it colloquially. I'm not upset that her privacy—I mean, her privacy has been violated since she's been, like, 35. But um, there was a, a tarring—I mean— what he provided on July 5th to Donald Trump should have been like in a basket of flowers. I mean, he milked that to to death. And it just seemed, I understand the gravity. Like, I can't even imagine being in a situation where we had all this going on. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine it. Except other people did. And they came up with rules to prevent, to, the, the the point of the rules that govern the FBI's behavior around elections is to maintain its political independence. And that doesn't mean screwing people evenly. It means just staying out of it. Mm. And it's amazing how in two instances in six months, um, he had a choice and somehow both ended up with him in front of a camera. And the notion that it's a 500-year storm, okay, so it's a 500-year storm, but the, the Department of Justice had given him a life jacket much earlier and saying, you know, this is how you handle it. And again, it's how Mueller did. So again, we're not going to come to any kind of it's resolution on this. Here. Yeah. No, can I, I can mean, I, it, can I say one thing though? That yeah. interesting. And, and, and again, and I mentioned, and I, as long as I can keep saying two things after your one, well, thing, I don't yeah. want to hear Emily too. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's important that, uh, two things. Okay. So you go back to the decisions, right? That, that he made and, and he has to own those right any person in that position of power you can have to do and the way he's described is look I was presented with terrible options and made what I think was the least best uh, least worst option and I think the one thing that helps hopefully people is to know that this was a good man making decisions that may have turned out to be terrible right it's not he's not sitting there conniving okay how, how do I really stick it to Hillary Clinton right it's that, not like Mr. Burns and the Simpsons no exactly um, so obviously that's not going to give a lot of solace to people, but, but it could have been, you know, obviously it could have been worse. The one thing I was going to say too, which is really fascinating that I learned, which I didn't really have this perspective. Um, and, and again, working on this book is I actually sat down with Robbie Mook and had lunch with him, you know, Clinton's campaign manager. Um, and the one thing that I didn't really realize at the time, and, and I think it's important for people to know is that from what he was telling me is realizing that the leaks that were coming out presumably of the FBI or the Department of Justice, about the Hillary Clinton case, understanding how those played inside the campaign. And this was something that fascinates me because he basically said, look, we knew nothing about this investigation, yet we were constantly having to comment on leaks from your agency <laughs> about this investigation. And, and what were we supposed to do with that? And anyway, I mentioned that because I think that that's a, that's a point that people don't really talk about. And by the way, I think that is the, the, the last unwritten piece in the Clinton case is the FBI leaks. And as I understand it, the inspector general is looking into that. He's not looking into shit. Yeah, you don't know and that. And this is not directed yeah, at you. No, no, you don't know that. But but I do know that Rudy Giuliani knew stuff in October 2018 he shouldn't have known. And, and, and I know that Jim Comey ordered that investigated. And now and you I agree with somehow that, that that investigation is taking longer than the Mueller investigation. Well, well be that as it may, what I'm saying is <laughs> Yeah, that, no, I know we're on the same, we are yeah. of one mind on this. Yeah. But I think it's... You know, there are bad actors play. Look, I, I wish that I believed that Jim Comey was evil. I really do. <laughs> it would be easier. Yeah. It'd be easier to say this is a guy who had a grudge. He was a prosecutor who went after them, you know, on Mark Rich and, and stuff that Clintons did. It'd be much easier. Hmm. The reason when people use words like sanctimony and naivete, it's much harder to, no, no, no. to grasp. Okay. But when I uh, was interviewed by the FBI, it was incredibly sobering. You know, this is something that I had 10 years earlier thought about. And it was in my lawyer's offices, and I had two lawyers and four lawyers. There were two agents and uh, a DOJ lawyer and a lawyer from uh, from the Eastern uh, EVDA, the, the Eastern District of Virginia. And they all come in, and they're like, hey, I haven't seen you since, like, the Musawi case. And I'm thinking, I'm the reason that these people are having a reunion <laughs> You know, you brought like people together. the last time they saw each other was Bin Laden's limo driver. <laughs> and they're like, hey, okay, let's start talking to Philip. It was incredibly deflating. 
But I, I uh, the reason I pray that is I, I have immense uh, respect, and I, nothing that I said should be taken as an indictment of, of the FBI or it's. It's it, a shitty. It, it's been a shitty situation for years, but it doesn't mean, you know. I Emily asked a question about Pfizer's hold your answer, but I'm going to add a question to that, which we ask everyone, which is, what is it if you had to pick something, or what's the top of your list of of changes that we need to make to to prevent this? Because the stress test, I'm not as optimistic as you are. I think a lot of institutions are failing. Right now, what happens is that if you're running a counterintelligence investigation, you're running a ta- counterterrorism investigation, you want to surveil a subject, you fill out. You fill out sounds like a you know a nice little application. You file a FISA application, um, which goes to the Department of Justice and then is presented before this court, basically laying out the facts that you have that suggest that someone might be uh, an agent of a foreign power or you know some type of threat, right? And I think what's interesting because we've heard this this uh, term FISA, you know, FISA abuse is the phrase that they're using that the FBI was uh, manufacturing evidence with the Steele dossier to go after Carter Page, right, the foreign uh, foreign policy advisor for Donald Trump, the guy in the red hat. The guy in the hat, right. Um, and what's interesting is that, again, I, I put this in the category of uh, the political campaign of attack against the agencies, right? It's trying to trying to just describe the FBI as out of control, this cabal that's out to get Trump. Aha, you use this uh, dodgy dossier, I think is the, yeah. the hashtag that they have to go after him, right? The reality, as usual, is a lot more nuanced and, and I think helps explain. And that is, when you're in the FBI, if you're an agent— your worst day is when you learn that you are now in charge of a FISA because your whole life is now consumed by this product. They're like hundreds of pages, right? Hundreds, hundreds of, pages, of pages, inches thick. And essentially, you have to lay out, you know, okay, this is my target. This is who I want to surveil. Here is my probable cause to believe this person's agent of foreign power. And then that goes over to the Justice Department. They chop off on it. And then it goes back to the court and they will either approve it or, or not approve it. And so and then you have to go back to the court, right, and tell them what you found. And every 90 days you have to renew it. And so the reason why I think it's important not only people understand what FISA is, but also understand the constraints. Every 90 days. Every 90 days. And by the way, if you go back and look at Carter Page, there were Republican appointees in the Justice Department who were renewing this FISA. And so this notion that this is some liberal deep state cabal inside the FBI is just nonsense. And I'll say if if you're really in conspiracy theory, like, you know, far out there land, and you really think the FBI was trying to go after Donald Trump, ask yourself two questions. First of all, why didn't they leak that his campaign was under investigation while the campaign was still going on? That would have been a death knell. Lights out, right? They didn't do that. They did their work in secret. And secondly, you know, you know, the CIA... Why don't you just manufacture evidence? Like, why are you going to go to the why court? Why did you look at me when you said that? Oh, man? sorry. It's a habit. I shifted my eyesight. Well, that's um, even worse is that we could call the deep state, but we're called like the incompetent deep state. The incompetent deep state, right. <laughs> so, Damn. again, I mean, you know, right, if they were trying to go after the Trump people illegally, why go to the court and get all this quiet authorization? So the whole thing's a house of cards. What's your one thing? And then there's one last contentious topic we have to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so my my one thing is uh, comes down to what we were just talking about with the FBI director. So... You go back to the 10-year term that was in, in um, basically after J. Edgar Hoover died. He was in there about 50 years. 100-year term. A little, yeah. a little too long, <laughs> yeah. a touch long. He's like a million years old. Right, <laughs> for, for any, any person in a position of power. And so, uh, you know, the rule was changed that this is going to be a 10-year term, um, but the president can still remove the FBI director for any reason or, or no reason at all, uh, at all, as we've learned. And so if there was something that I would change, I would I would seek to legislate that term, that it can't just be the president. Obviously, there are all kinds of constitutional questions about, you know, the president's article powers about, okay, running his own branch of government. But I just think that, again, the, the stress test, the guardrails didn't work. Um, they were blasted through. The president fired the person running an investigation into him. And so if there's not something else out there that can keep that from happening again, uh, then we're going to find ourselves you know, potentially in the same situation. So here's the last quick contentious question. Brace yourself. I am, uh, for a couple of years, have been flirting with the idea of getting a dog. Oh, boy. And I keep taking these online tests, you know, that, that take your personality. They ask wow. you if you're active or not and, you know. I lie sometimes <laughs> to get the like outcome I want because every time I do it, it's like schnauzer or something. Yeah, I really want a beagle. Oh, okay. okay. But um, I can't get a straight answer on whether beagles really do yap all the time or mm. whether they're too loud. 
Um, because you want been, you want to get the last word, right? I've been. <laughs> well, I don't want to drive <laughs> well, my neighbors crazy. Oh, got it. Okay. But corgis have come on my radar. Yeah. And you've got a corgi. Yeah. And I I like the whole Queen Elizabeth like pack of corgis look. <laughs> Tell me what. Yeah. So okay. First of all, the fact that you've talked about getting a dog, uh, I agree with whatever you say now. So, um, <laughs> it's the first now time. it's true. When people, t- it's the hardest thing about Mike Pence to hate is that he's got like all these pets. Yeah. Well, it says something right about you. I so, can't, so that's people good. who people. love animals. It's hard to. The two exceptions are Mike Pence and Laura Trump. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that was him, by the way. That was his voice. Um, so yeah. So so dogs obviously are great. The corgis. One thing I will say is mine is uh, I'm obviously partial. I'm biased. He's like a little human. Uh, he's it's the greatest and thing on name? the planet. Wilshire is his name. Um, Such a great California name. Yeah, yeah. You like that? Okay. We used to live on Wilshire B- Boulevard. Um, but I will say this. The queen has like five of them. Yeah. She also has a whole stable full of servants, yeah. <laughs> right? And so I can't imagine <laughs> oh, having more either? than one. Wilshire doesn't no, have yeah, a team take care of He doesn't have a team. Um, but it's, you know, that's a lot different when you have one dog. So if you have a dog with a gigantic personality yeah. like the Corgi, um, I would... One's good. I don't know about multiple of you know. But are they are they behaved? Are they yeah. quiet? Oh no, are he's they, great. Well, so how do they hit, get along with other animals? How do they he's, get along with two cats? He uh he doesn't like no actually he, he cats don't like him. Okay. But he likes everything. He likes everyone. He's got to say hi to everyone. He's quiet. Um, he never barks. That's a big deal. It's amazing. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, ah, my heart is warm just sitting here talking about Aww. it. No, but he, he's great. Animals are better than people. And a lot, so much better people. Oh. And the best thing about him is he sleeps on his back ball. like a human with his paws up in the air. I will, uh, I'm will. i going to tweet a picture about this, about him right after this. So. <laughs> but yeah, well, we're get, sorry that you didn't bring Wilshire. Yeah, no. next time. We should have demanded it. And now thank, that I know. Thank God he lived in Wilshire, not like La Cienega. That would have been a long, <laughs> that been a syllables. Horrible, horrible dog name. <laughs> exactly. Josh, it was great finally meeting you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, I think we had a, a mutual affinity uh, fan club respect, and there's always, every now and then, I'll tweet something about Comey, and you'd be like, <laughs> and not actually say, WTF, but <laughs> it's a more thoughtful version of. It's like the eyebrow, eyebrow raising what? emoji. I have to say, I always, I always. Well, let's hope that director Ray, you know, yeah. seems like he's pacing himself, but he's in a position to restore yeah. integrity and luster, and he's also might get fired any day. Yeah, <laughs> one tweet. I know one tweet away. Yeah. Just well, we tell. thank you so much for Keith coming. Keith Schiller has to find him first. That's right. <laughs> and, oh. and and fuck up the firing. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so excited to chat with you. Obviously, Philippe was very excited to to talk about some things as well. But I'm I'm excited because I I think it's really important that everybody kind of hears that side of the story because we hear so much in the news and so much of it from Trump, which has been not accurate. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.